Oh, well, hello and uh, a very good afternoon or good morning or good evening to you, wherever you are. Um, welcome to this online event, which is entitled Brexit and Post-COVID-19 post Options for the Economy. Uh, my name is Tony Travers. Uh, I'm an Assistant Dean in the School of Public Policy at the LSE, and I'm happy to be here and to uh, chair this distinguished panel uh, this afternoon. Uh, very briefly on them, uh, our speakers are Professor Sir Tim Besley, uh, who's School Professor of Economics and Political Science, and Sir Arthur Lewis, Professor of Development Economics at the LSE, Wolfgang Munchau, who is Director of Euro Intelligence and Business Research and Columnist for the Financial Times, and Vicky Price, Chief Economic Advisor for the Centre for Economic and Business Reform and former Joint Head of the UK Government Economic Service. The uh, Twitter handle for this event is hashtag LSECOVID19. The event is being recorded, so if you want, are going to make a comment later on, be aware of that. Uh, and we hope it will be made available as a podcast. Uh, when we get to the Q&A part of the afternoon, and there will be opportunities for questions, uh, please use the Q&A uh, feature at the bottom of your screen. Uh, questions will be submitted to me and I will pose them on your behalf and it would be ideal if you wish to if you could uh, leave me with your or give me your name and affiliation. Now uh, before I introduce or I sorry, invite our three um, speakers to uh, say their um, to make their introductions I just want to say two or three uh, words about this subject myself. Um, we will all be aware that once upon a time not so long ago, Brexit dominated all our discussions day in and day out to the point that people used to joke about, I can't read, watch, whatever it is anymore about Brexit. And we thought that that would be the, the, uh, our lived experience for some time to come. But lo and behold, along came an even more uh, dramatic intervention, not just in Britain and Europe's lives, but the whole world, through um, a global pandemic, something the like of which, frankly, um, none of us have seen, and with luck we will not see again, in our lifetimes. And of course, each of these, uh, one's an event, one's a sort of global crisis, will have economic effect, effects on the United Kingdom, on Europe, and indeed on the world, and on trade between countries around the world, uh, not only including the UK and the EU. So it's an, there's an uncertain economic and political environment now surrounding the way Brexit turns out. That's been true since uh, the referendum was kicked off, really, and certainly since the result in 2016. But now we've got the overlapping issue of how the world and UK and European countries deal with the fallout, the economic, political and cultural fallout from COVID-19. And of course, uh, that again spreads right around the world. So that's really the backdrop to today's event. We're going to hear from Vicky first, then Wolfgang and then Tim. So uh, Vicky, over to you, time to unmute. Thank you very much for the introduction, Tony. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share my screen. It doesn't always work perfectly, but let's see what happens. So. Um, find it and share, and with a bit of luck, we'll get there. Right. 
Okay, that's showing, I trust. It says COVID-19 and Brexit, one next to the impact of the economy. Uh, as, uh, uh, as Sonia was saying, we've been hit by, by a very interesting crisis and uh, one that we didn't quite expect. And therefore it's brought Brexit into context, if you like, not quite what we had expected right now. But it is worth uh, bearing in mind that uh, we're going to be debating Brexit for the next uh, hour uh, or so uh, when things have changed very dramatically. And I think it's, it's, it's worth realizing that as economists, we have a limited ability to really forecast right now what's going to be happening and how we get out of this particular crisis so that we can then focus a little bit more on what will happen to the various trade relationships we're going to be having with the EU and other countries that we're trying to forge right now. Um, this is quite unprecedented and very substantial. The global economy has suffered, trade uh, has declined very significantly, and there are forecasts now that uh, trade may go down by some 13% this year, but it could actually go down by 33%, according to the World Trade Organization. And even if we then um, recover from this, if you look at the OECD forecast here, uh, they expect a 6% fall in GDP, global GDP happening in both the, 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 the fall occurring in both the developed and the developing nations together. Remember back in the financial crisis, we had different sequencing, but uh, this time it looks like we're all falling at the same time, and more or less. Um, and how we pick up from that, uh, you know, will vary significantly on whether there is a second uh, outbreak of the coronavirus. And there are some signs now that in some countries that is beginning to happen. But even if the, the better scenario uh, is the one we end up at, which is the more optimistic one that uh, the OECD is, is uh, uh, hoping for, we're not getting back for quite some time to the rates of growth we had before. So again, if you look at the UK and Brexit, we're in a slower growth environment more generally. And since we're going to be depending on trade with other countries, not, not so much with the EU in the future, that's pretty bad news for us. And these are the sort of forecasts that have been coming for the second quarter. Remember, we've only got one month's figure, which is April for um, uh, this quarter. So uh, the, the expectations varied hugely between different forecasters. Uh, so nobody really knew the extent to which the lockdown would be impacting on various sectors, how fast, of course, the lockdown would uh, itself be removed uh, or eased, uh, and therefore what it would actually mean for the quarter and also for the full year. A lot of the assumptions that have been made by the Office of Budget Responsibility and also, of course, by the Bank of England uh, have been that by the end of this year, we're likely to have seen a return to some normality. Uh, nevertheless, we're still going to see some fall of 14% this year. Now, remember the huge difference to before, uh, but even then, we were not expecting anything big in the UK economy. So the world had slowed down, trade was a problem, and then, of course, we had Brexit. Uh, and because of that, the forecast by the Bank of England at the end of January, before they revised it all down, of course, to minus 14, was that we would grow by 0.8% this year. And this was still on the assumption that we would achieve some sort of orderly, good trade deal by the end of 2020 when the transition period finishes. From then on, we wouldn't be doing great. We'd just be growing by 1.2, 1.4%. Really nothing to shout home about. But we are actually going to be starting now the process of leaving the EU properly after the transition period, since it's not going to be extended, from a much lower base in terms of uh, where the economy would be, where productivity would be, and of course, with huge number of people 
unemployed. And we see the impact already. These were April figures, very substantial decline. We haven't seen anything like it before. During the Great Recession, the worst we got was 1% fall in GDP in a single month, and we thought that was pretty bad. And look what's happened now in the month itself. It was 25% year on year. And look at the sectors. Again, bear in mind what's happening with Brexit and which sectors are affected there. It's been widespread. Uh, quite interesting, of course, manufacturing suffering. We're very worried about manufacturing and Brexit, of course. Uh, but services have suffered very significantly. Interestingly enough, financial services, not so much, uh, because a lot has still been carrying on. And of course, financial services have been essential in, in getting the economy moving and also making sure that businesses have been supported. So that is still happening. But remember, this is one of the sectors that worries us particularly uh, with Brexit. But the fall has been considerable, has been widespread. And in manufacturing, of course, we have places in the sectors like the automotive industry where production has been falling by something like 95%. Uh, and where I think, if I remember correctly, in April, we produced just 197 cars possibly. Uh, whereas the previous year we had produced 70,000. So serious issue, where do we go from here? And you can see uh, the, the impact that there's already been, loads and loads of redundancies, of course, and, and loads of people are on the furlough scheme. Again, many of the uh, COVID job losses will be added to those that we're going to see in sectors that are going to be affected by Brexit if the forecasts about the impact of Brexit, of course, uh, end up being correct. Uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, you know, we, we are going to be one of the worst hit countries because the service sector is so significant. And the OECD has argued that the UK should delay the transition period so uh, that we can, um, if you like, pick up the pieces because we are very vulnerable to yet another shock like Brexit. And as you can see here, the UK is expected to be the worst hit uh, of the developed nations in 2020. The problem is, of course, that that is likely to be a short-term uh, impact. Maybe we'll recover. Still, with lots of problems underneath to solve. But the the problem of Brexit is much more long-term. Long-term, we're going to be uh, affected by its impact for many years to come. And these are the the expectations uh, put together by um, the government departments and put together also with with data that uh, the Bank of England had and so on. So the general expectation is that if we have uh, no deal uh, at the end of this transition period, we'll see a very substantial, almost 10% fall in GDP and will be 10% below where we would have been otherwise over 15 years. Uh, it will be a lot less if we have a free trade agreement, as we know it doesn't actually cover uh, the financial sector or services in general. So basically quite negative. Now, does, what does this mean? Uh, places like uh, you know, car manufacturers and sectors like car manufacturers are going to be worried significantly about this in addition to the collapse in trade that we have seen in cars anyway because of the trade disputes that have been taking place, the diesel scandals and so on. This is the amount of in and out um, uh, traffic that takes place in terms of components coming in, cars going out. Uh, so this is a sector which is undoubtedly going to be significantly impacted by Brexit and is already impacted, of course, by uh, everything else that's going on right now. So uh, it's a serious question, really, which is debated politically too. Uh, do we need to still worry about this? 
Is Brexit dwarfed by the current crisis? Is the impact that I've just shown, uh, which is likely to be long-term, I've no idea whether my screen has disappeared or not. Apologies, Vicky, this is LSE Events. Um, we are just having an issue with your slides. Could you um, please share your screen again? It's only showing one slide. I have shared the screen. Is that okay? Yeah, but we're seeing one slide only, Vicky. Meaning? We've seen the, the slide on the impact on sectors, but others I think we haven't seen, well, I haven't seen. Okay, so new share. I'm trying to share again. Is it sharing now? Only, try again, only the one slide on sectoral impacts, I'm afraid. Okay. Do you want to try once more, Vicky? And if not, I can share them from here. Okay. I will perhaps go back to that one. And how is how Perfect. is that? That's, That's good. it. If you share from there on, I think we've we've missed a fair number. I'm afraid. Oh, I'm so sorry. Here, whether so, you were talking round the one slide. Okay. So uh, I'll go back up. And what I was showing you before uh, was the impact that. Uh, the, um, the COVID-19 has already had on uh, various sectors with reductions in, in jobs and, and also uh, lots of people being furloughed and the question is what's going to happen to them all. My point was that a number of the sectors will be added to in terms of their impact, the negative impact by Brexit. Uh, this, was a, this was a slide of the OECD uh, which showed that the UK economy was likely to suffer the worst uh, damage. Uh, and he had argued that we should just uh, uh, perhaps delay the Brexit, but of course that's not happening. Uh, I had shown this automotive uh, slide, uh, at least I tried to show this automotive slide, which showed the number of uh, moves uh, between the UK and EU in particular, but also more generally um, in the car industry. And of course that is going to be very severely affected by Brexit. And I think I was getting to this one, uh, which was basically saying, uh, should we still worry about Brexit? Is it going to be dwarfed by the current crisis, given the very substantial decline that we're going to be having in GDP and problems that we're going to be dealing with. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, but there are still going to be very significant costs. And I think a lot will depend on, on what sort of agreement there may be by the end of this year um, between the UK and the EU in terms of tariffs and quotas. Uh, we may end up with zero tariffs, but there's still going to be extra form filling and extra cost of compliance and checks. And that's why I showed the previous slide, which was this one, which shows the, the ins and outs of the, the components and products of the sector and how extra cost there might be if you have to have many more checks after that. But, but then there are the sectors. Under a no deal, the areas that will be particularly affected will be chemicals, food and drink, clothing, uh, general manufacturing, I mentioned cars already, um, and they will be negatively affected in the long run. So it's not just a question of what happens in the short term as we recovered from the COVID crisis. Uh, and quite a lot of uh, areas will be particularly badly affected, such as, for example, uh, the North East. Uh, and borrowing will be considerably higher. Of course, we have a huge amount of borrowing that's taking place right now. So this year alone, 300 billion. So if we're going to be borrowing 80 billion more by 2023, which was the original estimate if we have a no deal, uh, even if that is the case. Well, I mean, that's quite small in comparison to what we're going to be doing this year with 300 billion extra. But of course, the expectation has been that by 2023, we probably will have returned to something quite normal in terms of our deficit to GDP ratio, and our debt will be 
uh, growing, of course, but at a diminishing rate. Well, that's going to add to it quite considerably. And that has impacts on what you do with any other commitments you may have. Overseas aid, I mentioned here, of course, we've now combined the two departments of DFID and, and uh, or combining them and FCO, and there are concerns about how much of that uh, money committed will in fact be spent there. Who knows? We're going to need some of that money perhaps for other uh, things. And the cost of, of Brexit will be limiting some of the finance available under uh, any uh, agreement that we may have under Brexit. And then, of course, we have the financial sector and services more generally. They will suffer from non-tariff barriers. I showed before that the financial sector was doing okay, even though, of course, banks have set aside huge amounts of money to deal with bad debts that might uh, occur as a result of, of uh, uh, businesses needing to be kept going and lots of guarantees from the government on that. And then, of course, there's a longer-term issue, which is productivity. Uh, if we don't get FDI, to the extent that we got it before, and there are already plans from various firms, not only in the car sector, to uh, cut back on investment, something we suffered from actually for a long period of time, underinvestment in the UK, then that affects productivity and long-term growth. Uh, so the problem is that Brexit uh, sectors, if you like, and Brexit problems will simply reinforce all the other problems that we already have with, with, with COVID. Uh, and although Brexit is short term, those other impacts are long term. And on trade, we're trying to do now agreements with Australia and New Zealand. Uh, we know that they're insignificant as a percentage of the overall trade. Um, but the truth is that the loss of trade with the uh, EU is not going to be made up by uh, any improvements as we move from, let's say, WTO rules with uh, other countries, the BRICS, first of all, into any FTA agreements we may have, or even if we move with Australia and New Zealand to have free trade agreements, we lose out very significantly, as you can see, in services uh, and in goods if we move away from the single market to WTO rules with the EU and if we move from the single market to an FTA. So those are there and they stay with us. And this is a reminder Although obviously having a, an agreement with the US will matter hugely, it's the EU that is very important for us. Uh, as you can see in the top 10, Australia and New Zealand uh, don't matter at all. Um, so finally, there are issues about regions. We're worried about regions now because of COVID quite, quite uh, seriously, uh, because the impact has been disproportionate. Uh, what we found is that London has been able to carry on uh, producing, if you like. There's loads of service sector companies here. Uh, people have uh, been able to a greater extent than others to continue to work from home. And where salaries are greater, what you find is that the higher the salaries, the easier it is to work from home. And those who have lost their jobs have tended to be at the lower end of the pay scale. And that has happened across many regions, a lot less in, in London. And the impact of uh, Brexit itself will reinforce this. As you can see the impact under different scenarios, EA membership, FTA, no deal and WTO, uh, basically no deal, WTO, uh, are significantly uh, harsher in, uh, in the rest of, of the UK than is the case in London and the South East. So the inequalities and the levelling up that this government is, hopes to do uh, are going to become very hard to, um, to uh, remedy uh, under a Brexit scenario. So where are we now? Um, we know that the June negotiations were very inconclusive. Uh, there are negotiations which will be uh, intensified between Ju in July uh, particularly, but we've now decided, of course, not to extend. Uh, it's possible that there will be some agreements. 
in November, by November. Uh, so in other words, it can all continue to be discussed over a longer period. Now we know that there isn't going to be uh, an extension of the transition period, but there are still huge areas there, which cause a lot of uncertainty uh, for firms. So uh, my general uh, view is that we have a thin deal that may be agreed by the end of this year. This still leaves huge areas that will still need to be uh, negotiated. Uh, and frankly, in terms of uh, the EU really wanting to give any sort of positive deal to uh, the UK that might be beneficial, I mean, the truth is that they have their own recovery issues, huge amounts of money that they're putting into the economy. They want to get everyone agreeing to, to raise the budget contributions, to borrow for this recovery fund. Uh, and uh, looking at completely different ways of pushing their economy, which will have lots of impacts on us. They complete the capital markets union, reinforcing the banking union, a different way in which they might be levying taxes uh, in the future, what they would do with the competition regime, the green economy, of course, itself, as they're trying to push. And where will we be with all that? So I don't think we can really forget Brexit. Uh, companies are not ready uh, yet for an end of the transition period. All the the polling suggests that, that they're just not prepared and it would be an extra cost that may just push a number of uh, firms over the edge. So I'll end here with a rather pessimistic uh, note. Okay, thank you, Vicky. I'm sure we'll never forget Brexit, um, but uh, thank you very much for that. We've got the, I think we saw your slides in the end. I want to go straight to Wolfgang now. Um, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much and thank you for the invitation. To, it's my first online conference, so this is a, this is new for me too. Uh, I don't have any slides, so we should uh, it should be technically a little a little easier. Now I've been writing columns in the Financial Times for a very long time, a lot about making very very pessimistic forecasts about the the global economy and about with Europe in particular. Strangely, on on the I'm, I'm not as pessimistic now on both on Brexit and on on the COVID uh, aftermath. As as um, uh, as I would say, the majority of commentators, uh, we've seen on on COVID, we've seen some surprising data. Uh, we don't know. I mean, everything, every outcome is still in in, in our grasp, I and mean, it could be a very negative long-term outcome. I don't want to you know deny the possibility, but um, we've seen a, a rebound in the U.S. labor market, a, a very fast rebound in U.S. retail sales. Uh, a surprising result from Spain. We've seen um, a, a pickup in employment there, an official uh, employment. Now, these are not definitive indicators. And, uh, you know, I would not go as far as to say that this would naturally produce uh, an, an economic upturn and a V-shaped recovery. We may not be in a V-shaped recovery uh, in, a, in a straight V, but it is quite possible. And I've seen forecasts, the first ones that are actually saying we are back to the same level of GDP by the end of the year. Now, I'm not quite that optimistic, but I, I, I would assume that this is a V-shaped or a, you know, sort of the Nike logo, which, which goes, which, you know, which goes, uh, which, <laughs> which is a slight, a slight uh, uh, distorted V. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's something we cannot rule out. Uh, what situations like these, and Brexit as well, what they do is they, they disrupt existing trade, existing relationships. What we don't know, and this is the difficulty in, in, in these discussions is, what, what new stuff will it generate? Uh, the Brexit outcome in particular, COVID is in that sense ha harder to manage. We have to do the right thing and by and large we're doing the right thing. Central banks are supporting the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the credit markets. Uh, we have huge fiscal, uh, fiscal programs to support consumers, to support employees, to support companies. 
uh, you know, unlike the during the global financial crisis, during the eurozone crisis, we have actually we we are doing mostly the right thing. We we quibble, we quibble about small things. Should the Bank of England cut interest rates by another decimal point, or should they add 100 billion or 50 billion to the asset purchasing programs? But on the whole, we are not. Our disagreements are not fundamental. Um, so with with Brexit, it's different. The impact of Brexit is, I believe, is completely unforecastable because it depends almost entirely on policy. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of the projections we are seeing are backward looking. They're looking at existing trade patterns, at existing products, at existing technologies, but there, there is change on all of them and the, the changes on all of them are themselves interacting. And let me try to explain on some of the, the factors that, 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 will, that will determine the the, 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 the result of Brexit. The first one is going to be the deal. Um, now, the deal will matter. And I'm relatively optimistic that there will be a deal. Uh, it, will, it won't be a big deal. It won't be the same as the EU, EU membership, but it will, keep, it will reduce the worst of the disruption. I, the reason why I believe there is a deal is, is precisely because the transition period is over. Uh, that was an absolute dissent. The EU is not negotiating. We saw this during the Brexit talks when there was this possibility of an extension there was a permanent a permanent gridlock of everybody trying to wait until the other side moves and the UK parliament didn't 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 accept this and then it went back to the negotiations and in the end it, 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 there was no conclusive no conclusive agreement uh, we we have a very short period of time now four months from the 29th of june when the next round of negotiation starts until end of October, which is the realistic deadline. So that's four months of negotiations. And so we, we know what the, the framework of those negotiations is. A deal can be made and also the, what the shortage, the, the constraint is not the time, the constraint is now just a political agreement. Uh, and I don't think you or the UK have the appetite for an artificial disruption of trade that would, would come in, uh, as, a, as a result of those quotas. But it will be a minimal deal. It will not be a deal that will encompass services. It will certainly not encompass financial services. It may encompass things like the recognition of degrees and professional qualifications. Um, there may be some, some transitional arrangements for, for some, some services. May, may, there may be something on airlines. Um, but it, I would not expect a broad-based a broad, a broad trade agreement, but I would expect a, an agreement on, on the flow of goods, on quotas, on tariffs, um, and um, level playing field that will be agreed, um, and and there will there are there are technical solutions to deal with the various issues that that people people are quarrelling about. Now the issue for the UK will be afterwards. What are the what is not so much is Brexit a good thing or or a bad thing? That's a kind of a dumb deal. It's a good yesterday's discussion. The issue for the UK government will be how to make the best out of Brexit, and. You know, we are living in an age of significant technological change. It is the kind of technological change that could have an impact of GDP. I mean, we've seen that the, the invention of or the, the rise of the digital economy hasn't been a, a big, you know, economic factor in the sense that, you know, productivity hasn't gone up. That may change. There may be, there are technologies, um, there are technologies around the corner, and not in terms of invention, but in terms of development, that might actually have an impact on productivity. And I've been recently doing some research in, into the technology of 3D printing, which also goes very much at the heart of the coronavirus uh, crisis, because 3D printing could, in theory, uh, you know, if, if the development was sufficiently advanced, 
replace the entire supply chain dependency because it would allow uh, it would essentially allow local production you, you, you could essentially produce anything any parts of the component uh, uh, locally so you would not need to to import that component and then assemble the, pro, uh, the the product locally what you would be trading in that sort of utopian world this is not this is not happening in the next 10 years but it's it's a technology that's developing and trade agreements are for long for a long time so we're not talking about the next three years here um, so you, you would be talk, you, you'll be trading in data and there are no trade agreements yet on data so this is a, it's a completely green green field that, that we're looking at the long at the long term at the long term future other areas for the UK to, to focus on are artificial intelligence um, Brexit offers an opportunity here because AI the EU hasn't gone anywhere in AI partly also because of regulation who has high data protection high standard data protection laws these laws were driven by concerns from consumers mainly that their data are being abused perfectly legitimate concerns and this was one of the areas where the European Commission which is normally you know more, no, more normally more producer friendly than consumer friendly it's been a long history uh, the consumer is as a group has gained weight over over the period of time but originally the EU was a producers cartel uh, and, uh, but but the data protection laws are entirely uh, driven by by, by, by the public um, if the UK were to devi deviate from from those uh, and build a new artificial intelligence industry to build an artificial industry it could do so faster than the EU if, if we hear complaints from EU companies uh, now the car companies want to get big in on the issue because you know a, a very large chunk of AI research happens in the automotive area for understandable reasons you know, self-driving cars again being sort of a utopian final product that could that could that could that could use artificial intelligence technologies but it would require a sharing of data of a, of a magnitude that is simply not possible under current regulation the UK could simply have a head start here um, the, the UK could use its exit from the EU by using you know the EU state aid regime does not allow does not encourage big shifts the EU has not been the UK has not been a great subsidizer of firms uh, in the in the various league tables of, of state aid the EU ranks the UK ranks towards the bottom uh, uh, Germany much higher uh, some 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 other countries much much higher than Germany even uh, so the UK would normally not have a problem with, with the state aid uh, regime whether in or outside the EU but it could use state aid more in a, in a way to encourage the, the shift of industries. I mean, one of the criticism I always had about the UK's previous business model, it was too reliant on finance. It didn't have enough, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it had some pockets of innovation, but it, it, it didn't, you know, the de-industrialization that has taken place wasn't an entirely healthy development, not, not, the, not the fact of it, but the extent of it. And, and, and the Brexit offers an opportunity to, to change. And just as COVID offers opportunity to change people and changing their business model. I mean, we're holding conferences on, on, uh, on uh, Zoom here, and we will probably continue to do that even when that lockdown is over. And there are many habits that we've adopted in, the, in, this, in, this, in, this, in this crisis that will basically be now used as an excuse. We could have done this before. There's nothing that could have stopped us last year to start uh, Zoom conferences or you know, teleconferences or to stop us working from home. We had the technology in place to do that, but now we're doing it. 
Um, now, you know, I think we've seen that restaurants are changing their business models to, to, to delivery services and, and these type of changes happening all over. We, we know from manufacturing companies, I, you know, I've served Germany quite, quite closely. Most of those German companies are looking very hard at their supply chains. They should have done that a long time ago, but they're doing it now because they have a reason to do it now. And, they, and this whole just-in-time madness and getting, you know, getting hundreds of components from you know, 150 countries and you know, arriving just in time, you know, it's, it may be efficient, but it is not robust. And they now trade some robustness for, um, uh, against efficiency and accept a lower level of efficiency in, in, in order to make the system more robust, to reduce the nodes in the, in the networks and to, uh, to have more local production. So basically the, the impact on, the bottom line is that the impact of all these things depend very much on events that have yet to happen. They're not forecastable. We are what, um, you know, what, what, what we are, what economists refer to as Nietzschean uncertainty. I, know that, uh, that um, a book has recently been written about it, uh, about, about the radical uncertainty, these concepts by Keynes and, and the and Knight of the 20s and 30s. This is a kind of uncertainty that defines forecasting. It's, basically, it's very uncomfortable for people to say, we don't know. But the, the fact that it is a true answer that we don't really know what's happening. So we, 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 we have to look at scenarios and look at, at things we have to do inside those scenarios. Uh, and I think it's not helpful to think to think in terms of the the more extreme scenarios that you know that can happen i mean uh, you know we can have a 10 percent drop in gdp as a result of brexit but that would require serial mismanagement of the process now we have to you know assume questions whether this government will you know will be successful whether the people in there are talented enough to, to manage this properly i have my own doubts but uh, you know we've heard some some interesting ideas you know, in the last in the last year or two about some of the industrial projects. Um, I don't think they will come to fruition. You know, that's where we probably have to sort of set in in our discussions. What, what do they need to do? But on the whole, I have no reason to assume that, that Brexit uh, will leave the UK behind the EU. If you look at the EU, they have problems with digitalization. I mean, Germany doesn't have a mobile, um, Germany has the worst mobile phone network of the, of the EU, can hardly make a phone call in various regional parts. Uh, companies are stu- still struggling with digitalization. I think one should sort of not glorify the EU as sort of some, some high-tech advanced nations that, that should serve as a reference. Um, they, they, have, they have big problems of their own. We've seen America has big problems as well. Um, so I think there, there, there is a great, there, there are opportunities for the UK, no doubt. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Lord Gang. Uh, slightly more optimistic, or at least opportunist opportunities there. Uh, as well as threats. Uh, Tim, Tim Besley. Some slides, very good. You seeing them? We are, yes, and I'll, this time Excellent. I will say if, if they don't appear for the rest of the day. Looking good so far, thanks. Okay, well thank you very much Tony, and thanks to the previous presenters and for the invitation to be here. Um, I'm going to just do a little bit of sort of how did we get to where we are now, because I think it makes us realise how distinctive or, or not the situation we're in really is. Um, and I'm going to begin with 200 years of UK growth very, very quickly uh, and, uh, and then uh, start from the position that uh, the UK still remains one of the less productive GC, G7 economies and what we can do about that. And we were already debating that prior to Brexit, COVID and all the rest, but I'll come back to that in a moment. The four periods of growth that, that I want you to just uh, be reminded of 
is first of all the long history, the Industrial Revolution through to the mid 19th century, from which psychologically Britain has never quite recovered because of course for a while it was the world leader and has never accepted that from the period from the mid 19th century onwards to something around 1980. Of course, it's very politically charged whether we make the date 1979 or not, but I'm gonna say circa 1980 was uh, a, a period of relative decline, which of course generated a huge amount of debate about what it was that was uh, driving the UK's incapacity to stay up with other leading economies in the world. Then uh, we saw some period of resurgence, basically between around 1980 and the global financial crisis. And then we've had this period, which we've already had more than 10 years of, of the post-global financial crisis economy. Um, and so just quickly showing you some pictures to illustrate this. The, this, this is just to show you the UK is the solid um, black line. This comes from the LSE Growth Commission that we did actually even pre-Brexit to talk about some of these long-run issues. Uh, the UK, as I said, by 1870 was the world's uh, leading economy. Um, it was overtaken by the US by 1950, by G Germany and France by 1979, but by 2007, uh, had regained uh, uh, some, of, some of its uh, position uh, relative to all three of those economies. Um, and uh, this is just another way of illustrating that, that the UK's relative economic performance pivoting around a period roughly 1980 looks rather different. Um, so where did it all go wrong? Well, somewhere around uh, 2007, 2008, um, the UK starts to basically uh, fail to make progress on closing, closing the gap uh, with other economies. And indeed, the story has been since the global financial crisis of essentially uh, zero real wage growth in the UK and zero productivity growth, very marginal productivity growth, but effectively zero. And the UK has reverted to being sort of bottom of the, of the league table to a point when we look at these pictures again, if we looked at them before the global financial crisis, we might have imagined that we were on some kind of path where we could close the gap with some of these other countries. It's much less credible that we might think that we would do that today than perhaps we might have thought then. And the question, and I think it's very important if we're thinking about where we're going to appreciate kind of what we've experienced in the last 10 years and also um, some of the challenges uh, around that. Um, so then came Brexit. We'd had the global financial crisis. We'd had a period of slow economic growth. Mm. And I think the key feature from Brexit as a sort of economic phenomenon is how exaggerated the claims have been about its importance on both sides. That was particularly evident, I think, during the campaign. Um, the one thing you shouldn't forget uh, is that the EU is fundamentally a protectionist club, namely it doesn't protectionist among its members, but it certainly is. And the UK is about to move between from being a beneficiary of that protectionism, if you think there is a benefit to being inside, to a victim. And I think that's more or less inevitable. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention that in, in, in a moment. But the thing we shouldn't forget either is that in all the period we were members of the EU, the UK made many of its most important policy decisions by itself. It did not rely on the EU to make most of the pivotal decisions that were distinctive in the period I described between about 1980 and 2008, uh, when the UK was performing pretty well. It was not the EU that was a drag on that. These were domestically sourced policies. And to an extent, the UK has pursued a distinctive economic model, which for a while looked pretty successful. Um, and 
if you'd frozen the picture, as we did actually, when we did our first LSE Growth Commission, just after the global financial crisis, um, we would probably have concluded that the issues around Brexit were rather orthogonal to the main deficiencies of the UK economy. Um, what have been the problems? Why has the UK not done as well as we'd hoped? There are issues around investment in skills, investment in infrastructure, supporting private investment. The UK has already always been to the bottom of the league table in private investment and, and regional disparities, which are more a product of these things than a contributor towards them. And so when you look at that list, and if you think those are the fundamental failings of the UK economy, um, the kinds of things that Brexit can either help with or hinder do not directly play into those. Of course, it can make things worse, and uh, I, I would accept that wholly, but they were not the principal deficiencies of poor economic, UK economic performance, had everything to do with policies that the government itself could choose, not policies that were exported from the EU. Then, of course, we went through this, the, the ructions where our political class looked totally incapable of handling uh, uh, the Brexit vote for a long period of time. Uh, and then at the end of last year, we thought all that had come to an end with the, um, where the British people, not the political class, intervened and said they'd had enough and an elected a government committed, finally committed to Brexit, pretty much at all cost. Uh, and, uh, and we thought, uh, rather naively, at the turn of this year, that this would be the year in which some kind of deal would be done. Um, and moreover, this was a government committed to a lot more than Brexit. I think we forget that. It was a government that was committed and elected on the back of levelling up, a very important aspect of its policy strategy. And the other is net zero 2050, which is a remarkable policy and puts the UK actually quite far out ahead of most of its other, most other economies around the world. And it wasn't, it wasn't a net zero without a plan. If you read the Committee on Climate Change's underpinning documents for net zero 2050, it's really pretty credible that this was a, this is a policy we could have if we only followed through on it. The hope was that this would be a year of trying to put Brexit uncertainty to bed. But I was always, and I, others may, may have had a different view, but I always thought it was extremely unlikely that we could ever dream of getting a good deal partly because of the asymmetry of gains and losses. We have far more to lose than we have to gain uh, compared to the remainder of the EU. But more importantly than not, the EU has to give us a bad deal to head off the prospects of future exit. And this is the fundamental political constraint on the UK ever being offered a decent exit deal from the EU. And that's not changed and it won't change. And we have to recognize that that's the price of Brexit. And you know, we, can, we can on the margin improve this and uh, I think I, I more or less agree with Wolfgang about what he said about where we'll end up. But, but it was always going to be on the margin. But to, I'm, I'm also, I think, a little bit in the same place as Wolfgang on, on, on the fact that there are many key decisions that we have to make now, putting Brexit behind us, which are our decisions as a nation, particularly on human capital policy, things that will affect investment. So, if we'd had a, what the year that we'd all been expecting, perhaps from January 1, it would have been a lot of ructions around the nature of the Brexit deal. Uh, but in the end, we'd have ended up with a, a not great deal, but that would have been that. But of course, we know that's not what happened. Uh, along came COVID-19 to mean all the best laid plans have been set aside. And at least temporarily, we've seen a, a derailment of the main, what I would have predicted would have been the main policy planks of the 20, of 2020, namely settling Brexit, getting on with at least trying to non-timidly 
deal with some of the leveling up, leveling up issues. They all, always is going to be a question, and we can talk about this in Q&A, leveling up has just been about not, not, not doing this in the wrong way and not doing it at the wrong scale. But we could have had a serious debate through 2020 about whether that was feasible and how that might look. Net zero, I think, was already fairly clearly mapped and there would have been very, and there still can be many key decisions to be made under that. We have to get on with it. It's 2050, it seems 30 years away, it seems a long way away, but we've got to get on with making some of those key decisions. And I thought 2020 would be that year and it's been temporarily uh, derailed. But what have we learned? I think we've learned a couple of things rele uh, relevant to Brexit. One is that in this crisis, there's been one constant, namely it's nation states that have been confronting the issue. That's in spite of the fact that this is a global pandemic. This has not been about global governance. And moreover, the EU has been pretty feeble throughout. Um, and the lack of solidarity that it's shown between Northern, Northern and Southern Europe is clearly quite remarkable given the rhetoric about this being a, a club which, which prizes itself on solidarity. I've not seen it. Uh, maybe some others will, 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 will in the Q&A claim they've seen it, but it's been remarkable by its absence. And the EU has simply not been a player in any meaningful way. There's a slight exception to that, of course, for those that are bound together in the Eurozone. Um, but, but if you take the EU as a whole, it's basically conspicuous by its absence in the crisis. So if you were a dyed-in-the-wool uh, um, believer in the nation state over the EU, I think you'd have only seen ammunition for that view during the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, of course, what's the overriding issue that we're really facing coming out of COVID? It's the huge uncertainty about where policy goes next. Um, economic forecasting, the, I, I, I almost laughed out loud when I saw that the OECD had made some forecasting claims. I think it's literally infeasible to make serious forecasts in the current environment. Why do I say that? I say that because anyone who's done forecasting knows that what you have to do is forecast the pace of the, the plan for government policy. And then given the plan for government policy, you try and forecast the economy given some plan. Well, if you could tell me what the plan is for government policy over the next year, I'd be very happy. Answers on a postcard mailed to me as quickly as possible because I don't think the government knows what the government policy is gonna be over the next year. So the idea someone can come out and forecast a path for the UK economy when patently we don't know what policy is gonna be is, 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 is frankly laughable and people really ought to get a grip before they start taking things like that seriously. Now what's true is that, that there are going to be considerable headwinds. I'm not, claim, I'm not gonna offer you any kind of Panglossian view that says, in fact, everything's going to be fine, far from it. All I'm saying is don't look at numbers and believe they mean anything. Okay, now we have to turn to the recovery. Now we just have to remind ourselves very briefly, and this will be my last uh, uh, remarks, um, what the scale and nature of the public intervention has been since we started on the COVID-19 episode. Um, really unprecedented measures, lockdowns, now a range of non-pharmaceutical interventions which are considerably raising the cost of doing business throughout the economy, whether it's social distancing or other sanitary measures that might have to be taken. And we've got to look at a, a range of offsetting measures because we simply can't stick additional business costs throughout the economy and expect the economy to operate in any way like it can under normal conditions. The second is the avoidance of scarring. We have, we have done a huge amount of damage to our youth um, 
And I don't think that's been properly recognized yet. And many of the measures that we'll have to implement in the next year will have to face up to that uh, and, and, and undo it. We'll have a huge problem of indebtedness, non-performing non loans. And this isn't an economic problem totally. It's also a political problem. If you look at the, um, the uh, non-performing loans problem after the global financial crisis, even seven years out, and these were mainly easy to deal with, in, relatively speaking, because they were mostly debts incurred uh, associated with the banking system, we have still not worked them out um, over a period of time. And that's because the politics is so difficult. And then finally, we need to create a credible path for public policy, not just to help the forecasters uh, do their job better, because that's the critical thing about the recovery. And that has two parts. Public investment, yes, we need public investment. But we are not going to get any kind of meaningful recovery unless we can create a, a, an air of confidence to support private investment. At the end of the day, it's going to be private investment supporting job creation that leads to a better path away from uh, this economic shock. I have a few thoughts on a couple of slides, but I'll go. I'll basically, uh, in the interest of time, I, I won't, won't go into them, uh, um, particularly around infrastructure, skills policy, housing, and governance. Let me just make one comment because I, I sort of expected Vicky to make it and, I'm, I'm, and she didn't, but I'll make it. I really think this is the time for the UK to get serious about decentralized governance. Um, I, I think we, in, in, unless we can make use of our emerging new mayoralties that we've put in place in the West Midlands um, and in Northern England and other parts of the UK and make best use of them to join up policy. Our problem is we cannot say we have an industrial policy, a skills policy, a housing policy, an infrastructure policy. It is exactly the join between those that gives us the best hope of having a decent economic performance uh, post-crisis. Uh, uh, post, uh, and we simply, I don't think, have the capacity to deliver that from the center. We've got to build the capacity to deliver it from the regions, and we've got to have a whole new model, in my view. Uh, anyway, I've said enough, uh, hopefully, to provoke you during Q&A, uh, and uh, back to Tony. Okay, Tim uh, and uh, Wolfgang and Vicky, thank you very much. Uh, excellent coverage of a spectacular amount of territory there. And while I wait for, there are some questions, quite a lot coming in, just I'd like to um, briefly ask the three of you not to go over the, well, you might want to touch on this later in the, in the afternoon, the, uh, our old favorite, which is uh, have the economic impacts of COVID-19, or are the economic impacts of COVID-19 so great that in a sense, any Brexit in a impacts would be minimal and hard to disentangle. I don't want to do that one. What I do want to do is to ask a slightly more serious question, which is, I mean, all three of you have, I think, effectively implied the need for bigger, temporarily at least, better, certainly, more thought through government. That is, government is going to have to make policy, to make decisions, to make investments, so in the very short term about to how, how to crank up the economy quickly to ensure it's a V rather than the U or an L. But more than that, then to restructure the economy to ensure the young don't pay, pay, you know, pay disproportionately for what's just happened because of COVID-19, to deal with the fallout from COVID-19 and Brexit. But this does seem to me to suggest the need for more activist government, and I'm afraid, Tim, you hinted elegantly at this, um, more active government, more thought-through government, 
but not at a time when it's demonstrating, at the moment at least, that it's kind of quite come to terms with that. Is that a fair summary of, you know, we're going to rely on government a bit more than we have, market perhaps a bit less, question. Who'd like to have a go at that first? I can start if you want, because uh, Tim uh, touched on it uh, himself, and I did indeed leave the sort of policy conclusions of what we can do on the Brexit and, and COVID together side to, to the others to speak about, uh, because basically it makes the problem that much harder. Uh, there, there is an issue about government intervention that government doesn't necessarily know uh, best. Uh, and what happened during the financial crisis is that we basically threw money at the problem, which I think the government now is going to have to as well, whether it's on skills, re-education, et cetera, infrastructure, the regions, not actually knowing which bits are going to stick and which bits are going to make the greatest difference. There will be, as there probably already is, quite a lot of money wasted in the economy. And I'm suspecting that the NAO, the Public Accounts Committee, uh, they're all going to be looking at this at some point. But the idea that you can seriously do a cost benefit, a little bit like what what Tim and also think Wolfgang was suggesting in terms of forecasts, you really can't tell what's going to be happening because public policy would be so important. Also, the government cannot tell what and how uh, you know, the, the economy is going to do as a result of whatever it is that their interventions might do. You can't necessarily learn from history. You can learn up to a point. Um, but what you know is that people may react differently. Businesses may have decided to give up. The banking sector will be in huge trouble. It's going to need loads and loads of support in the future. Uh, and then you've got all these people who have got, got no jobs and the entire sort of population that hasn't been spending anything who may all decide not to spend in the future or perhaps it will do exactly the opposite. So a huge number of unknowns. The government does not know best. And that's the, the important issue. It can set a framework and that's the best thing it can do. But right now, it has no other option but to intervene. Whether that intervention is going to be fantastically useful for the longer term or will go into the right areas, I think it's, it's still to be proven to be the case. Okay, thanks. Wolfgang? Yeah, I, may I, may I uh, issue a note of disagreement here? I think government will have to do a lot more than set frameworks. I mean, we have many concrete decisions, for example, on, on the 5G uh, mobile telecoms. We have to make a very quick decision very much, very soon on, on whether we allow Huawei of China to enter this this. this uh, this is a very active, active discussion because if we don't allow Huawei in, we need to develop in an alternative infrastructure. So we need to develop a, a strategy together with other manufacturers. In Germany, there is a, a big debate about uh, the uh, decline of the car, the car sector, and the lack of investment in in new technologies. Uh, there, the government is 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 looking at you know investments in battery. This is a very active government-sponsored, you know, Airbus-style industrial policy that's being being considered. Uh, uh, it's not just in, in Germany, but at, at EU level. So we will see a lot of active government, active industrial policies uh, so, uh, surrounding uh, indus key industries that and, and technological developments that are very much on the on the very near horizon. This isn't just you know investment in nanotechnology research, something that is that that has an uncertain payoff, but this is something very concrete. And government will will have to actively engage in that. And I, I understand there is a debate inside the UK government in favor of, in, you know, with some people in favor of those highly activist industrial policies, while others prefer to keep the role of government traditionally as a setting of the framework 
uh, and just make sure that everything is sort of, that there's a level playing field inside the economy. I think that will need to change. We will need to invest uh, much more actively. And that indeed points to a sort of huge schism within the government, it seems to me, between those who always believed in a sort of free market, free trade, liberal worldview, and those who now believe in a much more interventionist, what to some eyes would look like a sort of 60s and 70s worldview in British politics. But that's for the government to resolve. Tim. Yeah, so I, I have a particular take, take on this and government intervention in, in general. Um, there's a sort of tired old debate that quantifies government intervention by some measure of the size of tax take or expenditure in GDP. The way I think that's just a it's proven to be a kind of fruitless and pointless way of, of characterizing things. At the end of the day, we, we, we have to decide what state capacities we want and then how we use those state capacities to support different aspects of government intervention. I think we could be, and so this, the way, the, the sense in which I answer yes to your question, Tony, is that I think there's an opportunity to build new forms of state capacity coming out of this crisis that we badly need. A good example would be a national investment bank. So the Germany has had KFW for many years. I've been a long time admirer of KFW and what you can achieve. Britain has always said, well, we have one of the best financial sectors in the world. We don't need a bank like that. I just think that's plain wrong. We're going to lose access to the EIB almost certainly. Um, so this is an era, I, I think, in which we might be building state capacities and institutions that could have good long-run value for the UK. And that's a way of thinking of a step up in intervention. But it has to begin from a kind of functionalist point of view. We have to think of what the functions are that we need fulfilled by different institutions, the market or government, resource that, build the skills and competence within it before we then rush headlong into letting it rip. Um, but I think time has come for, for, for a national uh, investment bank, as I say, but we need to take a look at other institutional possibilities. I say investing in regional government would be something I would personally think the time has come to do because we've survived on a very uh, uh, inappropriate form of political geography for delivering economic development in the UK. For a, very, for a long period, and now could be a time we redress that balance. I think if we had a proper leveling up the debate this year, we would almost certainly have looked at that. One final comment, look at the New Deal. I mean, are we at a New Deal moment? Maybe we are, maybe we need to be. And the thing that I'm struck by, if you, if you go and reread your history of the New Deal, is just how much it was about institution building. Some of those institutions still exist today. Others were dismantled, say, after the Second World War. It's not about just ratcheting up spending. It's about deciding about the institutional framework you want to deliver. And on that, I think, yes, we will end up probably more interventionist. And do you think that, I mean, we, given we've, by chance, because of COVID-19, lived through a fascinating period in which government has had, in a very explicit and deliberate way, we can argue about how well it's turned out afterwards, to take the advice of experts, advisors, sage, uh, which some of you, I think, have been involved in, um, indirectly or directly. Um, and of course, it's a bit early to judge what, how successful it's been, but it has been a very interesting exercise in government trying to take advice from those who've done research and from science. Is that something that tells us about how public investment, public policy can evolve in future? Is it a good step or is it a complex piece of evidence either way? 
Well, I would say we have to be very, very careful because I remember when I first went to work for the Department of Trade and Industry, I discovered that there was a huge amount of industry culture there. In other words, uh, the aerospace industry would want uh, its money, even though perhaps it didn't necessarily need it in that form. The car industry had a very, very significant lobby and so on. And the pharmaceutical industry, of course, um, as well, which got all sorts of concessions at some point uh, during that period. I'm talking now about the 2000s, up to 2010. And I'm pretty certain that this has continued. So one has to be careful. But actually, I agree that we need a national investment bank. I always thought this was, would be a very good uh, thing to do. But of course, in order to do the right thing, you need the right evidence. So when we talk about evidence from experts, what you actually need is the local and regional uh, input as well. And again, I, I'm completely in favor of more regionalism, more regionalization. When you look at other countries, when we have one of the most unequal regional distribution around in terms of inequalities and we are way behind our competitors in Europe in relation to the extent to which uh, taxes are collected locally, the extent to which in investment decisions are made uh, in a regional level rather than centralized. We are one of the most centralized uh, countries and having abolished of course the IDAs as we did, the regional development agencies, we, we've ended up with not, no ability to get that information in from, if you like, the experts in inverted commas to be able to make the right decisions in those areas. Tim, Wolfgang? Yeah, a national investment, I, I, I know the German experience quite well, and, and it, has, it, has, it has many advantages, it has also disadvantages. Uh, the advantage is, for example, in a crisis like COVID, the KFW was deployed immediately to give credits to companies because they have the system in place, the money actually got there pretty quickly, while, while countries like Italy that didn't have one, took, uh, to, and, and the UK as well, uh, the flows took a lot longer. Um, these banks, national investment banks are very good if, if, it's, if they're accompanied with a strategy or a policy. So the real, the real issue is, I mean, there are different ways of, 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 of slicing the cake, but the, the, the issue is, do you have an industrial policy? And I agree with Vicky, there is, there is always the danger that this has been captured by certain vested interests. The last thing you want to do is, is build another car industry. Uh, at the time when the, when the, when the industry is de de declining. So, you, you know, one needs to have a smart, and there is a certain picking winners uh, element of this because any investment strategy, this is what investment is about. And if the government gets involved, it would have to form a view like the Chinese have done. They have, they have picked up the various, various sectors. The electric car was one of the Chinese uh, uh, priorities that they have developed artificial intelligence in that, in that segment. And they're now the world leaders in this uh, technology coming from absolutely zero uh, a few years ago. It started really in 2016, 2017 that they started to pick up investment in this. So, so in terms of an institutional mechanism, the, the investment bank would be right. But the essential thing is, and as, as, as you were saying, Tony, at the, at the beginning, at the center of government, you need to have a consensus and we don't have that consensus in the UK. So I don't think the investment bank is, is going to solve that. It's sort of, once you have that consensus, then yes, that would be my my second step because I'd like, you know, you would want an institution that can deliver that and that can sort of put this into a, into a sort of an objective way rather than governments deciding on an ad hoc basis. But you need, the UK definitely needs a strategy and I don't see one at the moment. Tim. I'll come to your, your, your question on, on experts. Of course, part of me wants to view this whole episode as kind of a revenge of the experts, because after all, it was during the Brexit campaign that we were all told we'd had enough of experts, but now we seem to have uh, turned uh, 180 degrees on that. 
That said, I, I have grave concerns about the approach that, that hides too much behind expert uh, opinion. At the end of the day, there's only one source of political legitimacy and ownership of policy, and that has to be politicians who, albeit should listen to experts and digest what they have to say. But every time I hear we're taking the advice of experts and that's why we're doing something, rather than I'm convinced this is the right idea and moreover, the experts agree. Uh, or maybe disagree, but I still think it's a good idea. Um, and I think the, the, the thing that's kind of interesting about um, the strategy is experts want to put what I would call the default policy in particular places. So an example would be in the COVID crisis, the presumption early on was that we shouldn't wear face masks in uh, confined spaces. And the argument was, well, there's no randomized control trial available that tells us that there's a benefit from wearing face masks. But you know, the default policy should patently, if a politician had had some courage to stand up to that, was if face masks make huge sense. There are no regrets, to, uh, no regrets. And moreover, um, uh, they, 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 um, uh, we, we should only diverge from that if you can provide evidence to the contrary, that face masks are in fact damaging to public health. And I think there's a danger that the experts become too uh, involved in setting what I'll call the default option, uh, rather than actually being able to just be used as a source of evidence. We know that saying I'm leaving it to the evidence is extremely dangerous in general. Evidence is going to be mixed, uh, except on very simple and straightforward issues. And the answer is somebody has to weigh that up. Someone has to make the trade-offs and, and then own that trade-off. And at the end of the day, that's the politicians. That's what we vote them in to do. Great. Okay. Now I'm going to go to um, questions coming in from around the world, from uh, men and women around the world. And I'm going to start with Maud, Maud Fisher from London. Um, something that's indirectly come up already this afternoon, but not quite uh, for all the speakers. So try and keep it short and sharp so I can get as many in as possible. Do you think it's likely that austerity will, will be used to tackle an imbalanced fiscal budget in the new, near future? And how effective do you think this will be? So is the government going to go back to and some stuff in the Financial Times this morning about, you know, going back, perhaps Rishi Sunak will consider spending cuts. But are we going to go back to austerity as a way of getting the um, budget deficit down again, Tim? No, in a short, <laughs> in a word, we're not going to go back there. Um, we're in a very different place than where we were in the global financial crisis. We can debate whether it was a good idea then. I happen to be more on the hawkish end, but really about institutions rather than the actual pace of, uh, of austerity. I was keen that we set up an Office of Budget Responsibility. We did that and we should use them. And right now, any reasonable use of that institution, I'm sure, without wanting to prejudge what my esteemed colleagues on the OBR are saying, is it's going to make not much sense at all to have a period of austerity until we put this firmly behind us. I mean, the only caveat, which is not a caveat to the strategy, is we are in a world where we're using monetary financed uh, deficits, in effect, and that's keeping interest rates low. I don't think there's too much danger in the near term that that strategy is going to be undermined by events, namely people deciding they're not so keen to hold that public debt or we have a threat from inflation, from the money creation. Neither of those look like an issue now, but the way in which things could unravel rather painfully if either of those two things change, but there's no sign of it. Okay, that's very clear, great. Um, Wolfgang. 
Yeah, just briefly, I, I agree. I don't think there will be austerity, but obviously there are discretionary fiscal measures that will expire. And uh, so we will not keep up that same level of spending uh, that we now have. Very good. Vicky, short I would, Yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, we've been talking about leveling up and um, regional inequalities and so on and infrastructure spending that was supposed to be happening, HS2 and things like that. What we do know is that we won't be able to cut spending in areas such as the National Health Service. Uh, the councils, local councils are already screaming that they're not getting enough cash. And in fact, they had huge, huge cutbacks before. They're going to have to have some replenishment there, social care and so on. So, uh, and we may even see VAT reductions in the short term. So, so basically, the deficit and the debt will be going up quite significantly in the short term. What I worry about in relation to the longer term levelling up agenda and regionalism is that uh, is the reminder of what happened at the time of the last financial crisis. Not that we may have quite the same type of austerity, although you never know, uh, but it's just that it is capital spending. That's the easiest thing to cut. You just don't do it. Even though we're talking about you know, shovel-ready infrastructure projects, there will be things that were planned or will, would have been planned later on in the Parliament that can easily just get cut when the economy starts recovering and we think we can actually do something about that fiscal position. And that's the worry. In other words, that we'll end up with all these inequalities that will emerge as a result of COVID, add to this Brexit, and we won't be able to sort them out because we will be focusing on how to get back to a position where at least we'll still be able to carry on borrowing from financial markets without interest rates going up against us. Okay, very good. Now I'm going to take two questions here. They're linked. One from Keith Raffin, an old friend of LSE events. Uh, in view of Vicky Price's first slide indicating the devastating impact on the Northeast, showing the increase in inequality, how does the government even begin to level up now? And then from Gillian Debs, a former, a former diplomat, are we likely to get the level of intervention in the economy and infrastructure as indicated by the speaker? with a political party and government who are ideologically imposed to government engagement and investment. Also, what role should local and regional governments play in this? Tim touched on that. Could, can we restructure our political government structure to deliver this? That's got quite a wide ranging, but they are linked questions really, Sue. Um, like, and I think I'm right in saying that the Centre for Cities and others have shown that some of the economic impacts of COVID-19 might also reinforce the existing regional inequalities. So, um, uh, Tim, Vicky, you both mentioned this. Ex I'm not saying Wolfgang didn't, but um, who, which of you, Tim, what do you think about this? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the, the, the issue for a very long time, in my view, has been not to imagine things done at scale. Um, that um, we have thought that marginal interventions could generate large returns. So I, I, don't, I don't actually subscribe to the view that, that the current government is ideologically opposed to investing in the economy. Indeed, if you look at all the discussion that had taken place both uh, leading up to the election campaign and I think in the period before COVID set in, there, sh there, was, there was every evidence that I saw there was readiness to rethink the kind of system we had in place for supporting regional economies. Whether that would have happened, we'll, we'll never know. Um, but I think the, the, big, the big fight, if you like, uh, that we would have been, been on for was whether that there would have been sufficient ambition. Um, 
because uh, with and that's not just ambition at the level of resources, but ambition at the level of governance. And I come back to what I've said now, probably the third time I said, and apologies for that, that unless you have ambition in, in terms of reforming the governance institutions with the resource to match that ambition, I can't see how you can deliver any kind of outcome um, of the kind we would need, for example, in the Northeast or anywhere else to, to make a, a severe dent in this. So the only issue is, will that ambition be uh, dented by COVID, given now that we're facing um, a, a more difficult situation? Well, as you pointed out just then, uh, Tony, um, if anything, we think the, 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 the traditionally disadvantaged or, or less prosperous regions of the UK hit even harder. So in some ways, it should go the opposite way. It should be precisely there that we are focusing resource. And, and presumably a greater need ever than before for significantly investing and thinking through further education and all the, uh, I think I, we, we all fondly believe are done better in Germany, uh, getting um, people, or being able to retrain people quickly or more effectively for a new economy as it emerges. Yeah, and, and just, I, I don't want to monopolize, but just no, no, one no. thing on that. I, I think the, the critical thing is also recognizing that such a policy has to be regionalized to work well, because we have, we have different priorities for skills formation in different parts of the country. So look at the West Midlands, you have a particular industrial need there. And so working with FE to deliver the skills appropriate to the West Midlands will probably look different in other parts. So that's precisely where we will not get that right unless we have regionally targeted strategies. Great. Vicky. Well, you will require loads of extra money. FE has been mentioned, which had received huge cuts uh, during the austerity period uh, and is still struggling. And yet it can play such a significant part in terms of leveling up, well, leveling out, if you like, the differences that exist at present in terms of educational achievements but it's quite interesting when we start by looking at where the various regions are not just in terms of the differences in wealth which are huge uh, between the north and the south so 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 wealth uh, i think in in uh, london the southeast is something like five times as high as it is uh, on average for the rest of in the rest of the country uh, that that exists and that's quite a, an issue it is also the differences that exist in productivity we think of some parts of the UK is highly productive because of the car sector and others, but actually productivity is highest in London and the Southeast. The differences are huge between London, Southeast and, and the rest. And what we find, just linking that to your education question, uh, is that the places that are able, because this, the structure is there, because the industry is there, because of the education is there, I don't quite know how it gets developed. But the, the regions that manage to keep their graduates, so which is a sort of sign of the skill level in the, in the area, are the ones that are higher in terms of productivity than others that don't. So there's a direct correlation between the two. So that should be absolutely the emphasis. This doesn't require a sort of intervention, the large scale by, by government uh, necessarily, but it does require them focusing in that particular uh, problem that exists in loads and loads of parts of the UK. So if we level up the skills issue, you can actually do an awful lot with the economies. Okay, I mean, there's another question come in from Kumar Devedasan about what industries should be focused on in different parts of the country to level up. 
I mean, can I target that to you? Uh, spring it on you, Wolfgang. Have you any sense of how a government could effectively, um, you know, invest in industry from part of the country to part of the country? And in industrial development banks probably are the answer. Such a thing is an answer to this, but any clues? This is, this is very difficult, especially if you want to combine the sectoral and the regional together. Because if you wanted, say, you wanted to towards high-tech industries, you would probably cluster it around the, 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 the high-tech universities more, more than, you know, putting, putting this uh, then into a, a region that needs development. So that, that, won't, that won't work. So I think that one has to be, one has to separate regional development and, and sort of the high-tech innovation clusters. These are two separate, 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 separate. If you want to make this a success, that, that's, what's, that's what, what, one needs, what one needs to do. The regional development is going to be very difficult. And I, I'm, not, I'm not that optimistic that, the, that it will be possible to, for, the, for the government, uh, political person, they, they, want to, they want to obviously increase investment in the north, there's things they can do through transportation, but we've already seen this with the high-speed train uh, debate, how difficult it is and how, how many complex issues there are, uh, there are involved, that even the high-speed train is not the answer. This is how France did this. France used high-speed train networks, but France also has a, has a very good network of local transport. So it would require significant transportation, and not just getting there from London, but also getting there between the various nodes that has generally been underestimated, getting you know, east-west links, and all sorts of local transportation, making transport cheap. Uh, that's another, an, an, another issue. Um, so so it's, a, it's a huge, this is a huge deal. I'm not very optimistic on that one. I think they have a chance on the sectoral side, but the regional side, I think this will be more difficult for the UK. I must say in terms of investment, I've always thought um, sort of giving other city regions in the UK a transport system of the kind enjoyed by London would make a radical change to each of their economies. That's just a personal view from the chair. Now I've got a question here by Facebook from Dan and Jay Shaw, who's at the Calcutta University in India. So good afternoon, India. Um, what policy change should be taken for immigration during this COVID pandemic relating to Brexit? So sort of bringing together the fact that underpinning the Brexit decision and you know, the, the uh, policy changes resulting from that are immigration policy changes which could themselves positively or negatively profoundly affect the UK economy. So if we now pull together the economy as we see it today and Brexit, advice to the Home Secretary about rational immigration policy for the United Kingdom looking ahead? Uh, I'm looking. I'm happy to come in on this. Yeah, go um, for it. No, no, go for it. I, let, 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 me, let me say one thing that m might mislead people who are listening because uh, it may make, make me sound like I was in favor of Brexit, which I wasn't. I think there's nothing wrong at all with a government deciding to take control of its own hmm. immigration policy. And, and you can be a huge success. Look at Canada, Australia, the US. There is nothing about controlling your own immigration policy. And, uh, and a lack of economic success, nor does it say anything particular about your view and about the position of your country in the world. So I say that because I, I, I always put huge weight and I continue to put huge weight on the success of the post-Brexit world, which I now fully accept is the world we're going to live in, would hinge very significantly on having a sensible immigration policy. 
I think there's equally nothing wrong in thinking that you have a country that is very attractive to people who subscribe to its values uh, to come and live in that country and to participate in its economy and social life. That's something we can all value greatly. So I'm, when it comes to immigration policy, I'm right on the, the liberal end without believing that we should necessarily go to open borders. So I think we were nudging in that direction, perhaps not fast enough for my taste, to make it feasible for people who can make a contribution to be pretty much liberally allowed to come and settle and work in the UK, which is where I would have ended up personally. Very clear, very good. Um, Wolfgang? Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, uh, the best immigration policy would be one that is liberal. Um, <coughs> I don't expect many fundamental changes as we've seen during the COVID crisis. Britain needed uh, people from Eastern to pick fruit and to, to, to uh, it, it, it's uh, that there, there are there, there is a requirement for certain jobs and the immigration policy gives gives will give the UK more flexibility. I don't expect a fundamentally fundamentally different different policy. And briefly, I would only add that um, we're going to have um, millions of unemployed, and it's not going to be very attractive for anyone necessarily to be coming in at this stage. So the, the Brexit problem we were all worried about may not be as severe in terms of not having access to skills and all that sort of stuff, which was already very evident um, before the COVID crisis, uh, given that uh, the, the number of people coming from the EU had gone down very significantly uh, in terms of the net uh, number that were coming in. So uh, the, the new immigration rules, of course, mean that um, anyone who is skilled um, can come in, but of course it costs the firms. So anyone from India uh, probably would find it easier with, with a good degree and a good salary, but of course uh, the companies have to go and, uh, and, and put the case. Uh, so, uh, but um, we were not allowing in, if I understand the immigration, new immigration rules, the unskilled. Now I think this is going to be a big debate which has come out of COVID, which is who are the people who really want to be working here? Uh, given the importance of the health service, care workers, all those key workers who were at the lower pay before um, and who now are considered to be absolutely essential. So, so is there going to be a rethink of what type of people do we really want and value and where we write to just focusing on the high skills supposedly as being the ones that we welcome and don't want any of the others when in fact I think our experience here has shown that that wasn't the case. We needed the lower paid ones and their pay may have to be increased as well. Because one of the intriguing things about immigration, net international immigration, is that some parts of the UK, their population will fall without it. Scotland famously will, whereas London has a natural, more, more births than deaths, natural growth rate, mm. other parts of the UK will actually have a falling population without net international immigration. That's something else to think about in this regard. Now, from, and we're coming up to 3.30, I know, but, uh, and other half hours and indeed our time zones elsewhere in the world. Liam Selsby, who's a second year undergraduate politics and history student at LSE, does the panel believe coronavirus will reduce the UK's bargaining power during the Brexit negotiations? Uh, bearing in mind how deeply affected the EU and the rest of the world has been economically from this pandemic. He goes on to talk about Mr. Trump, interestingly, Canada, sorry, the United States election, America more generally, and China have been unusually missing from this conversation, but it was a broad enough subject already. So coronavirus impact on the negotiations, reduce the bargaining power, strengthen the bargaining power. Wolfgang, looks like one for you. 
Yeah, I don't think I don't think it will. I, I think it's actually not very helpful to think to these in terms of trade deals, in terms of these game theoretic concepts of you know <laughs> good deal, bad deal, these transactional terms that we're always always using. Uh, now that we're beyond in the in the EE case with the EU, now that we're beyond the, uh, the the transition phase, or at least politically beyond it, uh, it we are now in a situation where both both sides look at the precipice. And both sides don't want to jump in it, so they they have an incentive to to run a deal. The EU, the EU runs a very large trade surplus with the with the UK, and even though the UK is a smaller part of EU trade than vice versa, and obviously the size the scale effect matters. Uh, there are a lot of European companies that would, would stand to lose if there were tariffs imposed on uh, on European companies. The UK would have a net uh, would, would would enjoy a net net inflow of funds. Uh, it's not in the EU's interest either. Uh, the American trade deals are difficult because of agriculture. There's nothing to do with them that hasn't changed. Trump has an election going on. Trump cannot uh, cannot alienate the agricultural lobby, so there won't be any 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 um, any big movements on on U.S. trade, uh, U.S. U.K. trade this side of the general election. Uh, so, and in the next year, things will be different again. And Congress will, is ultimately the the, the the force in the United States that. Will Constrain, constrain the, the trade liberalization uh, extent. So I, I, I think it's it, COVID is not a not a big factor. It won't it won't accelerate, nor will it stop trade talks. Okay, and I'm going to miss the other two out on this occasion because one found to get one more question in before three thirty, which is a, a face a question via Facebook from Niti in Singapore, and Tim touched on this. But do you think the green the green recovery policies? will find enough traction in the EU amidst the economic challenges, unemployment and Brexit. And that's a, it's a good way to end on the sort of thinking into a sort of slightly more positive, well, potentially more positive uh, policy outcomes from all of this. That is an improved economy. But there are a lot of things for policymakers to think about in real time. So, uh, Tim, you did mention um, the 2050 commitment. Do you think they'll keep their eyes on that target now? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think this is pretty entrenched. And as I said in my remarks, what, what I've been impressed by in the way our debate has shifted, so the question was asked about the EU, I'm going to ask, answer it about the UK, um, is how carefully thought through most of this has become. This is not a vague aspiration. We have a real roadmap. Many of the things on the roadmap still need to be properly filled in, but you know there are the, the, the core elements of this through investment in renewables, for example, um, and the possibility of replacing the natural gas network with a hydrogen network. All of these things are now really very actively being thought through. And I see no I see no um, attempt yet to row back from any of this. Now, what, what what you're right about, or the questioner is right about raising, is this will have to be paid for, and uh, there are already going to be questions about whether you can stick things on consumers' bills for electricity, for example. Have we reached the limit of that, or should we need tax finance to do this? So it will be competing with other priorities. But I think we've kind of crossed the Rubicon with this one and that we are, we are really committed and I would be very surprised to see any pullback. Vicky? Um, I'm talking about the EU in that case. Uh, I mean, the, the truth is that the EU is going about it in a way that will also raise the funds to allow for this to happen. The Recovery and Resilience Fund that they're setting up, which is 750 billion 
uh, euros, of course, still to be agreed, uh, includes uh, you know, 500 and so and also a billion of that will be going as grants and the rest will be loans. Uh, but the idea is that it, that money goes into investment projects. There is, a, of course, a lot of money already to fund the deficits and, uh, and uh, each country is doing that. Plus, there's some extra cohesion funding going into various countries. But this is actually targeted at getting the economy to change in the future. The element of that, as I understand it, is green. And of course, the way in which you actually fund it, this increase in the money, it's first of all, of course, you know, the budgets um, that, that each country puts in are increased as a percentage of the GDP, so they put a bit more, but they're borrowing additionally, and that is on the back of that budget, but also, on the, and they will be repaying it by raising taxes, including quite seriously, green taxes. So they're talking about a proper carbon tax, not just the, uh, the ETS that exists at present, which is, uh, uh, the one which is actually based on sort of permits being sold around those uh, uh, countries and, and uh, sectors, but also actually a proper carbon tax. In addition, they're talking, and that will affect the UK significantly, uh, if we don't have a trade deal of, uh, that covers that, they will have a border adjustment tax. So because we've been exporting all this carbon uh, in the sense that it's produced elsewhere, of course, we may be bringing some of that in at some point, but for the moment, uh, a lot of our carbon is, uh, is emitted somewhere else, and then we bring it in as imports. So they will have a border adjustment tax, which will capture that carbon. So that's gonna make actually imports more expensive, maybe make them more protectionist. But they are going about it in a, uh, under the Green Deal in a way that not only does it have funds, but it also has the ability to repay some of those funds through raising taxes, which will completely change behavior of individuals and companies. I think that's the way forward. And it is entirely possible, whatever our current plans are, that rather than us being ahead, the Europeans will be ahead instead. I think there sounds to be some consistency uh, between whatever happens with Brexit, between the approaches on both sides of the channel. Wolfgang? Mm -hmm. No, I, I completely agree with Vicky on this point. And, and it's... Uh, it's um, uh, the EU, it is, it is the one thing that the EU has right, and that, that is this, 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 this emphasis on, on, green, on the Green Deal. Um, much of it will depend on, I mean, the, the programs that we have just heard about, they're just the proposal at the moment. There, there will be, it will be less than that. It will yeah. be less money, it will be, the you know, conditions won't be as good, and there will be other factors as well, because the Italian economy will, you know, will not generate the, the demand for green technologies, you know, for, if they get 80 billion of that money in grants, they will not invest that in, in, in green technology. Mostly, most mostly will be invested in other, in other things. But yes, there is a direction uh, of, of funding. Uh, much will depend on the politics of it, whether the green parties will recover. The green parties had an absolutely disastrous period in the COVID. In, in COVID uh, the traditional parties have recovered. Um, so if the Green parties manage to, to claw some of that back, then, you know, then, then there is a chance, for example, in Germany, which is probably critical, if the Greens manage to get into government. At the moment, the Grand Coalition would actually have a majority. I didn't expect that to happen. I mean, I thought the Grand Coalition was finished. It's my, one of my, <laughs> my misjudgments there. The Greens are, would be struggling now to get back into, to get into government. That would make a that would make a difference than it would you know, because Germany is clearly on on route to miss all the targets and scupper a lot of the EU's policy. Um, so that is something to watch out for. 
Okay, now we must finish. The time has come, I'm afraid, to end the events. I'll say a couple of words and then do a few adverts and a few thanks. I'll do this very quickly. I think what this afternoon's event has convinced me is that the overlay of COVID-19 and Brexit, each of them, massive events for the UK, Europe, and indeed uh, the world, um, that, uh, certainly for some parts of the world, that these are they're going to continue to preoccupy us and their consequences will be discussed for years to come. I think that's pretty clear. They overlay economic policy, industrial policy, wider impacts of government on um, the electorate. And in fact, they require governments, I think, to rethink quite profoundly how they governments approach policy and the public. And that's probably no bad thing. They're forced to, they're required to do that. In the UK, we are on our own. The UK is on its own now. It can make its own decisions, good or bad, and uh, including whether or not further to, or to some degree to decentralise to allow a more sensitive policy making in different parts of the UK as part of an effort to rebalance uh, the economy. A number of other old favourites have come up. We didn't really pursue as much as we should. The UK's long-term productivity question or medium-term one I, for one, would have liked to have asked whether somehow out of all of this productivity might suddenly improve for some reasons we then don't understand, but that's for another event on another day. Um, and uh, that's all I, I think. That, my, my final thing we couldn't talk about, which intrigues me personally, is the impact of COVID-19 on cities, but that may again be for a, another event on another day. So I'd like to thank um, Vicky, Wolfgang, Tim, for their uh, brilliant expositions uh, and contributions this afternoon. Uh, also like to thank Rosie Hines, who's sort of been behind the screen, keeping us uh, with all the questions coming in from all around the world. And thank you from all around the world and from the UK and from London with your questions. Um, there's a nice set of adverts in the chat thread, if you're not watching it, for other LSE events, including one on, um, the UK reaching another of these deadlines on the 30th of June. Uh, that's one coming up, chaired by my colleague Kevin Featherstone, who uh, I should have said that the European Institute, the School of Public Policy behind these events. So thank you to the European Institute as well. And so lots of adverts of things to come from LSE events. Thank you to the events team. And I'd just like to thank my three speakers once again, look forward to seeing you or hearing you or indirectly chatting with you on the chat function all over the world. And uh, from the, everybody at the LSE, and indeed doubtless others here involved, not at the LSE this afternoon, thank you very much and goodbye.